Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club with myself Gary and... Me, Tilt. Exactly. So today we thought we'd just do a sort of wild card episode. We thought we would pull one sitcom from the 60s, the 70s and the 80s out of a bag, one episode of each, and they're all, I suppose, what you would call forgotten, semi-forgotten ITV sitcoms. Although one of them actually did get two series, and we thought we would just sit here and chat about them. There is no link between these shows, apart from the fact that they're all ITV, but at least two of these shows are ones that we've been after for quite some time. We, we knew about all of them, and we couldn't lay our hands on them for a long time, and then finally we managed to, to get hold of the gear. So we thought, why keep this to ourselves? Why not share the wealth with everyone? So Tilt, tell the dear listeners what free shows we are going to be discussing today. Well, the first one is uh, that famous prison sitcom with Ken Jones, and who's playing the governor again? Michael Barrington. Michael Barrington, yeah. No, no, not that one. The other prison-based sitcom starring Ken Jones, in which the governor's played by Michael Barrington. It's Her Majesty's Pleasure from 1969, I'm going to say. Uh, 68. Yeah, the episode we saw was 69. Okay. Yes, it, had, it actually did get two series, and it was made by Granada, and has a theme by Derek Hilton, but... Well, that, I mean, if it's by Granada... It is by Granada, so I didn't need yeah. to say that, did I? Yeah. So, yeah, two series, 68, 69, all in black and white. And I understand, because you're the keeper of this information, Till, I understand the survival rate of this series is not particularly fabulous. Uh, we've watched all the available episodes, <laughs> which is this one. Indeed. Which is all about the prison food. So, okay, here's the thing. Let's take a quick detour. And we're going to be taking a lot of detours today. Because we we decided, we thought it would be nice to just have one episode of each show, but it also means as well is that, certainly in the case of this show, we can't do any more than just this one because it's all the material survives. But because there's only so much you can say about one episode of any series, then we're going to have a sort of, you know, a, a meandering sort of path with this particular cast. First of all, I I don't need to repeat this because anybody who's listening to this show, I'm sure, will have heard Ronnie Barker talk about the origins of Porridge, how it was originally a pilot within Seven of One. It was one of two shows written by Clement and Lavernay. And Ronnie Barker said, and in his awards, he, he imagined it when he saw the idea at first, he imagined it being like Bilko in prison. He thought it would be more farcical, and it was only when they started really getting into it. They sort of realised that they could have more depth and it could have sort of pathos and sombre moments and so on. So this is effectively Bilko in prison. It's one of these little oddities where... Remember when we were talking about on the Are You Being Served pilot? Thank you very much, by the way, for all the lovely feedback we had about the write-up with Ware. That was um, it's very pleasing that so many people enjoyed that. When we spoke about Jeremy Lloyd saying, right, what sitcom have the BBC not done yet? Uh, they haven't done Department Store. And straight away you were in there with Pardon the Expression, not to mention Pinwright's Progress. Well, Pinwright's Progress isn't a Department Store. Pinwright's is... By the way, uh, while I was looking around, because, and I've forgotten which account it was that tweeted it, Gary, can you have a look? Can you search Twitter for Pinwright's Progress? 
fact, if you have a look at me, I retweeted, I think, saying, look, it's the second pin right picture. Uh, so there was an account on Twitter that was tweeting things from the Radio Times, and there was a second picture from Pinwright's Progress. And that sent me down the Pinwright pinhole. I found out that certain sources, and I think they're quoting Mark Lewison's otherwise impeccable Radio Times Guide to Comedy, they give the impression that Pinwright works for a store called McGilly Galley's. It's not. McGilly Galley is Pinwright's deadly enemy with a rival store. But I think Pinwright's is more like a a sundries kind of store so he doesn't have departments he'll have everything behind the counter i think there's something about it being like the world's smallest version of that store i'm not sure but uh, yes so let it be known if ever you find another online source or anything like that telling you pinwright does not work for mcgilly galleys pinwright works against mcgilly galleys whenever you hear people talking about porridge I, I would be surprised if there are very many articles about that show which say, oh, but this wasn't the first prison sitcom in the UK because Her Majesty's Pleasure has been sort of forgotten about like so many, particularly ITV sitcoms, which tend to sort of come and go quite often because they don't have a repeat outlet. It's not easy for... So, so many shows start on BBC Two. That's something that gets forgotten about quite a lot as well. Shows like Yes Minister actually began on two and then got repeated on one that's where they got their popularity the same with faulty towers now in itv's case of course they've only got one outlet at this time anyway when channel 4 started they did repeat some itv sitcoms i think channel 4 was where i first saw man about the house in circa 85 or something like that but anyway i digress as we will many times during the show so yes porridge is not the first prison sitcom in the uk it was this little series here, which stars Tilt. Do you want to rattle through some names? Particularly the headline actor, prison officer Arnold Clislett, played by... Is that the one played by John Sharp? That's the one. I thought you were always the castless wrangler. I was only handing over to you because you were going to tell me that John Sharp's from Bradford. Yes, yes indeed. Because if there's one thing Bradford does do, it does punch above its weight for producing actors. Okay, how is this for... One of the best cast lists you've ever heard. Now, bear in mind, of course, these are all across 13 different episodes. But our principal characters, uh, those who appear in all the shows, we've got Ken Jones. I'm going to come back to Ken Jones in a moment because I want to do a little bit of sitcom universe business. He's prison officer Leslie Mills and then John Sharp. is prison officer Arnold Clislett. And we've also got a couple of cons who appear regularly. One, Mushy Williams, played by John Normington. The other one, Pongo Little, is the first time I remember seeing John Nettleton in such a role. John Nettleton, of course, Sorami yes. in Yes Minister. It's very unusual seeing him in this type of role. And also, if you can't place him in Yes Minister, if you ever watched uh, Victoria Wood as seen on TV, and there's one that ends with a night thought with a vicar, Talking about boiling an egg. That's John Nettleton. And yes, as he looks like he's been bulked out. It's like he's put like a couple of t-shirts on underneath his uniform to give him a bit more of a menacing presence. John Normington is the bad guy at the desk in the Doctor Who story, Caves of Androzani. He's not Shavaz Jack, he's the other one. I mean, if you're familiar with the 
Kev's Avengers Arnie, chances are you don't need me to tell you which baddie is which. He's the one who actually turned the story into a Jacobean tragedy by addressing the audience because he actually misunderstood a stage direction. Uh, he was supposed to be talking to himself and instead he turns, addresses the audience and it was like, hey, that's pretty effective. So that got left in. That's the story as I understand it. If you want to uh, investigate and find out that I'm wrong, that's okay. You know, that that old saw about uh, the Lindsay Anderson film, If, they couldn't afford to shoot it all in colour, that's not true. Just to give you an example of one of those, did you know that isn't real? That's that's the real meaning of the word factoid, you know, something that sounds factual. Something's oh. passed on as factual. It's the shape of a fact, but it isn't a fact. And unfortunately, it's now just become a word meaning small fact. People say language is growing. I think, unfortunately, language is shrinking. We have words that mean things that then get used to mean other things. But I mean, there's people now who start using incredulous when they mean incredible. Incredulous means non-believing, <sighs> disbelieving. I had sorry. a I had a conversation the other day with somebody about the word guesstimate, and he was trying to justify its usage. Seriously, I mean, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's no, just no. evil. No, but anyway, okay. So another name I'm going to come back to in a second. But here are some more names who make one-off appearances across the 13 episodes of this show. We have, I'm waiting for a way hey from Tilt, Joe Gladwin. Way hey, I met him. I have his autograph somewhere. Trevor Bannister, Michael Robbins, Bill Dean, Raymond Mason, Paula Wilcox, Doris Hare. Michael Robbins is an episode of Callan. Brilliant. Julie Goodyear. And in the episode that we saw, Paddy Joyce. Julie Goodyear's not a surprise. She's in a lot of... Granada stuff. She turns up in Pardon the Expression. She turns up I think she might be she might be in Spindle. Uh, I think she's in an episode of Mr. Rose. So well, I mean when she did Coronation Street, she she was a veteran of Key Street. So this show was written by Leslie Duxbury and John Stevenson. John Stevenson's a name you see a lot in Granada series of this era, such as the aforementioned nearest and dearest. Instantly, our attention was captured by the fact that we've got a prison sitcom and we've got Ken Jones. Like I say, I'll come back to that in a second. But then, in Wonders, we've already alluded to this, the governor of the prison is Michael Barrington. And of course, Michael Barrington... series two... Series one, the governor is Wensley Pithy from Special Branch. Okay, cookies. So, Michael Barrington, of course, is the governor of Slade Prison in Porridge. And if you're trying to sort of place him, if you're not overly familiar, if you remember the episode where Dudley Sutton has a homemade weapon uh, and he's looking uh, to try and take somebody hostage, and initially he's got the governor in his sights, but the governor's got a case of the 100-meter dash. So he's unavailable, so he has to make do with Brian Wilde. So anyway, that got us then thinking about, okay, the sitcom universe. Clearly, the governor here, he's at this prison here. He's then going to move on to Slade Prison, so on, so on. So if we can get a definitive list of all the times that Michael Barrington has played the governor of a prison, and I'm hoping that we can maybe hit like 100 (laughs) instances, that'd be fabulous. Now, again, tangent, and indulge me. Because it's silly, and we obviously we know that this is just nonsense and just a flight of fancy, but go with it. Ken Jones, prison officer Mills. We've seen Ken Jones not obviously not just horrible lives in Porridge, but also in the Whackers, where he just got out of prison as well. 
Now, I'm pretty sure we speculated previously, could we sort of in a roundabout way suggest that Horrible Lives is actually the character in The Whackers, although actually he's he's a bit nicer, because Horrible Lives is horrible, whereas in The Whackers, Pal Whacker, he's not, he's not that bad. Now, I'm just wondering, could it be that Ken Jones, or, or rather, Prison Officer Mills, could it be that, that, that eventually he, he strayed from the path of righteousness and ends up in Slade? Because why is it that everybody has always got it in for poor old Ives? Because, I mean, as even Prison Officer Mackay says, you know, he's, he's not the nicest of people. I mean, he's, he is pretty awful. But he definitely seems to get a lot of stick from the other prisoners. I'm just sort of thinking, well, if he was an ex-prison officer, he would do, wouldn't he? I'm wondering if it's more of a familial link. Are they going, oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's your cousin. Yeah. Yeah, he ended up in prison. Oh, really? What was Ives in for? Did we ever find out? I don't, well, I think, I think the, the implication, the suggestion was that he was just a, a general sort of petty thief. I don't think that he was, I don't, I don't think he had a, a specialist sort of area. Uh, like a like a cracksman or anything like that. No, I don't think so. I think he was just because. No, oh, this he, is he, another picture of him, and it's like, oh no, 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 that's my um, that's that's another cousin. Yeah, they they they, they do look alike. <laughs> uh, actually, he ended he ended up in prison. He's out now. He's gone, you know, and his uh, his all his family run him a run him ragged. Oh, is this him as well? No, no, that's that's actually another cousin. I've got three cousins who all look alike. He ended up in prison. Oh no! Is there some sort of no? No, he's a warder. Oh really? Right. <laughs> this is like my theory that um, Tom Good, Rex Tanner, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Martin Bryce are all cousins. They're all related because Rex Tanner is the worst parts of Martin and Tom. I don't think it'd be a good idea for Ives ever to say within the confines of Slade Prison that he has a relative who is a prison officer. I think that'd be a really, really foolish thing for him to do. I think he'd be better off just keeping that to himself. According to Lewison, who I just defamed earlier, the original premise of this show, Her Majesty's Pleasure, was to feature a prison football team and their endeavours to get fit. And the show progressed, and I guess it was like there's not enough mileage in this concept. I don't remember ever seeing John Sharp as a prisoner in anything, but you, you can tell me if I'm wrong there. He was in the prisoner as number two, so you think that maybe that uh, that's Arnold himself doing a little bit of work for the village. So why is he then chasing Hilda and just Baker? Just like um, Guy Dolman, Guy Dolman in the Harry Palmer films, uh, we can easily believe that, as well as being Harry Palmer's boss, he did a little time in the village serving as number two. So the premise of the episode that we saw called T for Two Hundred, it was the penultimate episode of the series you, you know what i mean what, what, what i say i mean it's, okay it's easy for me to, to make the you know the reference to bilko in prison but i mean that that's that's fair isn't it it was it was quite broad yes the episode and it was quite a sort of silly premise it wouldn't be all that far away to say that you know you could probably do this kind of thing on like children's tv it wasn't all that far away from like a, a an afternoon sitcom very, oh, it's, very it's family viewing yeah it's family viewing but it's but it's also it's very it's very, it's very, it's played in a, in a, in a very over the top manner. Having said that, it's family viewing, and I'm still, I'm leaning on Lewison here. Uh, he he has series two going out at nine p.m. on Thursdays, and series one 
mostly going out at 10.30 p.m. Oh. Another thing Lewison alludes to is that in The Two Prison Officers, we have a similar sort of dynamic to Mackay and Barraclough. John Shop is the one who'd have them all breaking rocks 24 hours a day, and Ken Jones is more the Barraclough one who, who believes in the ability to rehabilitate the prisoners. He's the softer one. But you were saying something, Gary. No, um, no, I was only, was only going to say, I was going to uh, make reference to the fact that Odd Man Out was a post-Watershed production when I was 19. Yeah, well, that's a bit, bit early for it, really. Should have put it out after the transmitter switched off. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, Clislet is, is very coarse, isn't he? He, he, he does... Clislet? Clislet. Am I saying it? No, Clislet. here. Clissit, no Clissit, you're Clissit. right, Clissit. Yes, John Clissit. Sharp. Okay. Clissit. So. A fishy requisite. <laughs> so he, he, he likes to put down mills in a variety of robust ways. Uh, he, he's, he's not, I, I think, I think you could, re, you'd have more respect for Prison Officer Mackay than you would do for Clissit. Because I think that, I think that Mackay is fair, fundamentally. I'm not so sure that Clissit is. I could see Clissit holding grudges and going to town on them. This is the second of two things I've watched uh, involving Granada shows that involve buying a very bizarre food item. What was the bizarre food item in this instance? In this instance, chocolate-covered ants. Yes, because they made the mistake of... Because basically, the, the chefs, you know, the, the cooks in the, in, in the place have gone on strike, or, are fa- or, or rather are trying to break out. So the prison officers find themselves having to try and feed the prison and they make the mistake of letting ken jones leslie mills go off and get the grub and he gets all these little sort of society little tidbits and what have you and uh yeah chocolate covered ants now i'm presuming that that cannot surely be what it sounds like that's that's gotta just be an expression <laughs> what else it? can it be well no but they wouldn't no, they're not it's not just gonna be dead ants covered in cadbury's is it surely not um i i can only assume that it is for some reason. When have you ever seen that in the shops? Very ro- well. I tell you what, I'm going to look that up. Right. Uh, by the way, the other Granada show involving outre. I use that word too much, but I do like it. Outre foodstuffs is uh, an episode of Big Breadwinner Hog, in which Hog is brought a can of pigeon brains in syrup, and he says, "Who who knew pigeon brains tasted like marzipan?" I'd like to think that some research was done. You see, right? Line? You see that the the I'm going into that the search engine is saying chocolate covered ants. Is that what you want? Chocolate covered ants. So so it's obviously heard of them before. I don't know. Okay, don't, the, I'm not seeing chocolate covered ants, but I am seeing um, trail mix made of beetles and scorpions, buds, whole roasted crickets. Uh, there's a book called Chocolate Covered Ants. I think that Sainsbury's actually sell little packets of crickets. I remember seeing them a couple of years back and being rather surprised there's, at it. There's a recipe at food.com for chocolate-covered ants. Uh, ah, oh, no. I've, I found a website that sells edible insects that's chocolate-covered ant ant wafers, but they're out of stock. Only $4.25. What exactly is the recipe for chocolate-covered ants? Because I can, I can presume a couple of I, key I think, elements. Yeah, yes. Uh, four wafers of white chocolate swirled with real ants and milk chocolate packaged in a window box. That gets you four four dollars four dollars twenty five sets you back. I think if you if you're looking for an interesting present for a loved one, don't bother with this garbage. 
We promised you tangents on this show, and we are delivering on that promise. By the way, one of the other faces that was in this, not credited, didn't have a line, but again feeds into the idea of the prison universe, was Ray Dunbobbin. And he's probably best remembered for, well, a couple of things. I didn't know you cared on the live reports and also Brookside as well. He was a regular in Brookside for five years. But in this instance, if you think back to second episode of Porridge, he is the inmate who eats light bulbs. Hey! So there you go. So again, another prisoner. Now, I made a comment to yourself, Tilt, while we're watching this. I said to you, how would you like to be a prison officer in a comedy prison like this? And you said, no, you said reverse spats effect. Now, can you elaborate for the listeners what you mean by this? The spats effect, for anybody who's a new listener, is the quality a sitcom might have of not being the most hilarious of comedies might not have the best characterization. I'm not saying that Spats is unfunny and has poor characterization, but it was a children's show, so obviously it foregoes uh, some of the elements won't get in an adult sitcom, but there's just something about that show, the location, some of the characters, that just makes it pleasant to watch, to be around the location, to be around the characters. Now, with Her Majesty's Pleasure and Porridge... It's a prison. It's just painted bricks. It's not meant to be a pleasant location to be around. So that's all I'm saying. It's just like, no, I wouldn't like to be in a comedy prison because it's still a prison. It's still bare bricks. It's it's not. It's still meant to be somewhat oppressive. Yes, yes, I can appreciate this. But um, nevertheless, I would like to see more of this series. I wish that more of it survived. It's It's silly broad comedy it's not gonna have i suspect obviously we don't know because we can only see one out of the 13 episodes i suspect that it's not gonna have a lot of social commentary about the the penal system like porridge but yes hopefully one day maybe somebody will turn up a whole load of episodes in their attic now you mentioned spats there the one of the principal characters in the next show that we watch has appeared in spats and also appeared in teabag the best show ever and both in the same year 1991 this is a bit of an oddity because first of all it's a single series sitcoms from 1979 it's called lovely couple like i say only one series but it got 13 episodes in that series so quite a long story arc and this went out on saturday nights saturday night sitcoms sort of interest me because they they feel like a rarity even though they're not, because there are plenty of sitcoms that have gone out on Saturday nights, and yet it doesn't necessarily feel like the principal destination for a lot of sitcoms. I tend to sort of associate sitcoms more with sort of weeknights, maybe Friday night, maybe Sunday night, if it's you know the, the 10 p.m. Sunday night slot or whatever, or early Sunday evening if it's something like Last of the Summer Wine, but I don't really sort of associate early Saturday evening with sitcoms. Now, Here's a funny thing. Initially, because I had seen, you know, okay, there will be people listening to this who are avid continuity collectors. And, of course, with continuity, when it's scraps of TV collected off old Betamax and VHS and so on, then you never really know what you're going to get on them. Now, one of those old scraps of continuity years and years and years ago had 
a clip, I think it was the opening titles, of this show, Lovely Couple. And I remember thinking, who are those two people who are the principal characters? Because I don't actually recognise them from anything else. That's why I mentioned that the chap Anthony O'Donnell, who plays opposite Elaine Donnelly, they play David Mason and June Dent. When you look them up and look at their acting CVs, they're actors who've basically been in everything but you don't necessarily pin them down to one specific role. And in the case of Anthony O'Donnell, he most recently, I think he's been in the BBC series The Other Half. He was in the Sky series Stella with Ruth Jones uh, for several episodes. He was in Skyfall in 2012. But he's, he's one of those actors who just sort of appears here and there and everywhere. I believe he was a regular in the Sarah Jane adventures back in the day. And likewise, Elaine Donnelly is somebody who has had sort of parts in series such as Midsummer and Doctors and The Bill and Between the Lines, the police uh, drama from years back. Also Specials as well, if you remember that, from 91. She was also regular on EastEnders uh, for a period. So there are certain shows where you don't necessarily sort of automatically think, oh yeah, it's that person. Yeah, it's like sometimes you just sort of see a name. But even though the principal two actors are not necessarily ones that you immediately associate with sitcoms or a particular role, the rest of the cast is full of recognisable names. And I'm probably putting down the, the, the two main actors there. I mean, probably if you watch more drama, then you probably know exactly who they are, but I'm not a drama guy, so hey-ho. Anyway, playing David's mother is Maggie Jones, who people will remember from Coronation Street and All Things Granada back in the day. It's also in the Foresight Saga, just in case anybody's a fan. She plays a maid in that. Uh, June's parents are played by Geraldine Newman from Ever Decreasing Circles. And from Cockle Shell Heroes, David Lodge. <laughs> yes, indeed. Elsewhere in various episodes, we have Roger Sloman, Michael Sheard, Norman Mitchell, Michael Stainton, Robin Parkinson, Kenneth Waller, Old Mr. Grace, and Andrew Sachs as the vicar. So the general sort of premise of this show is that you've got a couple who've been sort of courting is that still a word? They've been courting for a while. Do you ever hear of couples going steady anymore? I thought you said going at it. <laughs> Do you ever hear couples going at it? Yeah, you know, hang around the right places. Okay, name them. Keep keep it. I don't know. I'm not a peeping Tom. I'm just assuming, but I'm, admittedly most of my assumptions are based on comedy. Comedy about no, you, peeping no, you Tom. Said, you, said you, could, you said you could hear them. I'm presuming that you meant like a specific apartment block near you or something. You know, no, no, fortunately. Nothing like that going on. No. So the point is that this couple, they've been, you know, together for a while and they are very keen to go on holiday together. They normally go on holiday with same-sex friends, all that kind of stuff. And they're trying to sort of explain to friends, family, everything else that, oh, we're thinking of going on holiday together. Uh, uh, but in order to sort of swing it, make it acceptable, because it is still the 1970s, and not everybody is, you know, a randy little bleeder. You know, some people still have standards in the William Rees Mogg sense. They imply that they're getting engaged. And this then takes on life of its own, and suddenly it's like, oh, they're engaged, so therefore we must organise the wedding. So and so on. 
Actually, not in some ways. Some ways, but not some ways. It's a little bit reminiscent to the plot of Lucky Fella with David Jason. Yes. Yeah, I've had the theme tune to Lucky Fella stuck in my head, or at least what I remember is the theme tune to Lucky Fella. It's, It's really odd how that particular show for years was just... It was just something that you, you you read about in the same way that you read about all these other old David Jason sitcoms, Edgar Briggs and Sharp Intake of Breath and so on. And then I think it was Terence Frisbee's the writer, his son, Dominic Frisbee, published a blog where he I think he'd found from his father's own videotape collection, he found three episodes and uploaded them to, I think it was Daily Motion. And then since then, of course... Lucky Fella has had a DVD release and now turns up on gold. I mean, certainly not as often as, as Only Fools and Horses, but it is very odd to see a show that was like you really would have had to have gone out of your way to try and see any of it at one point, And then suddenly there it is just sitting there alongside, you know, open all hours and, and bread first thing in the morning <laughs> on the, uh, the digi box. But anyway, I digress. So, I suppose you would say 1979, this is... I I made a comparison where we were watching this. I said, doesn't that living room look really drab? I said, the whole decor of the place, it's all very... It looks 1970, let alone more, more than 79. And as you pointed out, not everywhere is sort of swinging Tony Hancock, bachelor pad London, is it? I mean, It's there, interesting there was... watching all this 80s nostalgia that's going round... That's kind of US-led, like Stranger Things. So there's a whole 80s nostalgia thing. And in 80s nostalgia, everything is very 80s. Everything's 1980s. People listen to 1980s music. They have 1980s decor, which might be true of the US. But when I was growing up in the 1980s, all of the previous decades were still hanging in the atmosphere. Basically, the entire 20th century was just kind of like hanging over everything like a fog so you would go to a house and the the furniture might be from the right from that from the decade you were living in but the light fitting might look very sort of i'm not sure what the word maybe googie style um very sort of 50s 60s like mirror doodles like it's you know just have that side of pop artish quality and the fireplace might be 30s. I mean, the the house I grew up in was built in the 1870s. All the doors were flushed. So, you know, there were no panels or anything. It was just, so, you know, everything was, that was kind of, that was kind of a 60s and 70s vibe. But the house is very sort of cold and creaky. So, so there was just a general vibe. So that's, that's just, it's, it's, peop, it's something people say. And I can actually understand why you would, if you're producing a certain kind of drama, why you might downplay the presence of the past in the past you're dealing with. Because it could be distracting. So I don't have a point. Goodbye. And wherever you are, Mrs. Calabash, I will find you. Um, I think I drew the comparison with Agony, another London Weekend sitcom from the same year. But of course, that's different. <laughs> Do you want me to expand on that point? Well, here's the thing. The pilot for Lucky Fella was produced in 1977. We managed to get hold of copies with, you know, those lovely VT clocks. Back in the good old days when they were actual physical clocks that were on the set and had been nailed onto blackboards. 
that had things like recording dates. So the pilot had been recorded in 1977. The opening titles had been produced in 1978. So the time clock going into part one, it says lovely couple, new titles, and there's the date, and it's 1978. But then when we go into part two, it's lucky, uh, lovely fella and his lucky couple, <laughs> pilot, part two, and the date was 1977. Um, Tilt, I will ask you to explain this in just a minute, but would you like to say the phrase edited copy ah that's because i have i have the box sets of coronation street 60s 70s and 80s and on the 70s one if you start at the beginning and then rewind back network god love them what a wonderful company have left in the vt clocks and we say coronation street part one vt blah 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 and this is take one Edited copy. There's a voice that comes on <laughs> just after the, the main thing. I mean, the vision I have in my head is there's a guy sitting at a massive quad machine doing the edit, and it must have like a little microphone where he can just dub onto the sound so that everybody knows that this is the right one. This, if they're sort of spieling, you know, if they're, if they're winding it up and it's like, and the, the guys, the guys. At transmission control, don't hear edited copy. It's like, okay, guys, be aware. We might have an incident like BBC Two had in the late 60s, 1968, I believe, with an episode of Sherlock Holmes starring Peter Cushing where they broadcast the session tape instead of the episode. So, Watson, if you just take a look at the red clay... I'm sorry, love. Sorry, love. Blew it. Yeah, okay, I'm not quoting directly, but it's that kind of thing. So it's like, okay, let's do another take. <laughs> the camera's going out of focus. I mean, it... also um, Sykes on UK Gold once broadcast. Yes, that. yes. If you hadn't mentioned that first, I think that was quite a discovery. It's like, hey, the session tape exists. So now, if you buy the Sykes DVDs, you've got behind the scenes extras. You get to see uh, Richard Wattis break character. And I'm glad to say he doesn't break it too much. He's just not peevish. <laughs> like the name, but he's obviously. I know that Michael Grade likes to go on about how you know all the the unions. You know that there was always. Well, let's like... not think about Michael Grade. Let's just think about Richard Wattis a little bit more. Hey, he's in the prisoner too. Magnificent. What I would like to think that the guy who says edited copy at Granada. I don't want to think that he was responsible for editing anything. I'd like to think that that was actually his job. His job was to turn up and say edited copy. <laughs> Any road up, so lovely couple. I'm it just is... so he's like sitting in his. He's got his own dressing room. He's sitting there sipping chamomile tea, very good for the voice, darling. And you know he's got he's got like a, somebody's massaging his feet, so that he's in he's he's got to be in tip top shape for this. And he comes down, takes his place in the seat. Are we ready? Yes. Okay. It's time for the magic. Edited copy. Thank you, darling. Oh. Yes, I'd, oh, it's such praise from someone like you. Yes, yes. Yeah. See you next week. Yeah. Kisses. Bye. I'm going to ask you to mention Ray Brooks in a second, but I'll save my little memory of um, voiceovers first. Autobiography of Brian Moore, ITV, football commentator extraordinaire. He mentioned doing a voiceover for, I think it was an electronics chain. They just wanted to hear him say it's a goal in his distinctive style. He said, I was in the recording studio for five minutes. 
and came back out and had earned enough for a cruise on the QE2. Yes, there's a story I've heard about Ray Brooks where a fellow actor bumps into him and says, Ray, it's good to see you. What have you been doing? I haven't seen you on TV or anything like that. And he said, I've been doing a lot of adverts. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I hope something, you know, hope you get something too. And it's like, no, I've been doing a lot of adverts. I could buy a theatre. I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly what he said, said that you could buy a theatre, but it was like, you know, there's money. Uh, if we can, I mean, take another tangent. Um, Jay Ward, uh, most famous production, probably Rocky and Bullwinkle. And he ended up producing adverts for the serial Captain Crunch and others. And it was like, there was just, there was so much money being thrown at them that they could do things they couldn't afford to do with Rocky and Bullwinkle. Rocky and Bullwinkle was animated in Mexico because of various, you know, outsourcing perks and things like that. Cheaper labour. But Captain Crunch adverts, they could do pencil tests and animatics and all kinds of stuff and it could be animated in America. It was just, it's... It's kind of obscene in a way. As we're talking, I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna say these out loud so that somebody can remind us of these in the future. Because as we have this conversation, I keep on thinking about right, we could do this as a subject for a future podcast. So one of them earlier one, when I was reeling off all the names from the different shows, um I'm I know I've mentioned this to Till previously. I definitely want us to do a cast about supporting actors and our favourite supporting actors are people who turn up all the time in different things. And we'll include, obviously, drama as well as sitcom in that. So that's one. Let's park that there. There is a website I could point you to, a kind of a blog called Familiar Unknowns. Okay, yes, like that. And that's just like, here's this person you've seen that you might not know their name. It's good work. I've just talked myself out of what it was that I was... Ah, no, I know what it was. Right, yes, definitely a cast in its own right. We will discuss the sitcom universe in adverts because we've we've often sort of talked... We've touched upon this in various discussions about various shows and so on, but we need to actually look at the sitcom advert universe. Why is it that Tom and Barbara in the advert universe are precise opposite to how they are in the good life they have all the gear even a polaroid camera for goodness sake what is it about that step toe commercial for kenko coffee where they've suddenly come into money in a big way what's the backstory behind that the mythical ever decreasing circles adverts for <laughs> breakfast cereal which should, we, should can... we not i'm so sorry i'm sorry this is very self-indulgent i i can only hope that Listening to this, you like us as people and you think we're funny because I know it's one of the great risks of podcasting is it's, it's a risk of broadcasting, a risk of anything where you have an audience is thinking you're really cute and funny and you're not, not as cute and funny as you think you are. Sometimes a conversation is not as fun to listen to as it is to have, but I will explain this, but I crave your indulgence. No, save, save it for that cast. Right, we don't need to, to go off on that tangent just now. I'll, no, I have, I'm not going to. I'm just going to say that for Gary's amusement, I wrote the scripts from all brand commercials that were based around ever-decreasing circles. Though weirdly, they'd all go on holiday to somewhere hot. They were all set in some, like, Spain or Greece or somewhere like that. And that's as much as I'll say now. Not, I also wrote 
an outline for a further episode of Ever Decreasing Circles, which kind of disregards the special. It's still the whole setup of Paul as the neighbour, and and Paul is killed by a police marksman for impersonating a dog. And the episode is called Sausages. <laughs> And I think that's quite enough of that. If you've come here for an academic discussion on the series Lovely Couple, I'm afraid we have disappointed well, you. Th- th- well, this is the thing about Lovely Couple. I've, I've only I've just watched it again just before we started recording. And I was thinking, there's not hellish much to say here because it's a routine sitcom. And you know us, you know, routine sitcom is not a put down. It's one of the, you look at the past and there does seem to have been so much more money in comedy, sketch comedy. I just you just look and there's like a week, just in one week, and be way more sitcoms on the main channels. I know we're in the multi-channel environment now, but even I think I think even people younger than us, there's still that faint feeling that BBC and ITV are the principal pillars around which all broadcasting. I'm not going to disagree with that. Yeah, well, why are you not going to disagree with that? Excuse me, I just mentioned one of your employers. Um, I've met Dusty Bin, right? If we're if we're, go, if we're gonna go there, right? You know, I can I can I can bring him on the podcast. Not kidding. Oh well, there we go, because we've heard his voice. That's true. We have. There's actually. an episode yes. of th- there's an edition. Sorry, there's an edition of three, two, one where we hear Dusty Bin speak, and he doesn't speak the way I thought he would speak. Anyway, so anyway, routine right, okay, comedy. Right. Yes, the television schedules used to be flooded with sitcoms and sketch shows that had money thrown at them, even though they produced multi-camera videotape, which. People now, commentators, peak TV people, seem to think marks it out as substandard or poor production values. No, that's just... Yeah, that was it, okay? They're minimal production values. They're not poor, but it's like this is as cheap as we can do it. Even as cheap as you can do it has been well budgeted if we look at the terms of how the money spread around. And by doing this, we can have two or three sitcoms in a week on the main channels. And a sketch show. Mockham and Wise can do a sketch about a newspaper vendor. And they've set up a whole little street set for like a 90 second gag or something. This, well, this show that we're talking about here, this has got, this opens with a film sequence for about two minutes. For, for just a, a relatively throwaway gag, just establish the characters. That's all the film that is in this particular episode. I, I don't think you would necessarily get that even maybe, I don't know, 20 years later? Well, now what you'd get is you'll get one sitcom that's produced single camera in the place of where there might have been four that were multi-camera with some single camera elements. But the jokes are fairly... There's, there's no joke I can pick out. In fact, there's a strange failure of one joke. There's a bit involving... Spoilers. An Eiffel Tower model which has been made by David Lodge. David Lodge, what might I have seen him in? <laughs> Oh, you want me That's to say That's a it? reference to Q. I know you said it before, but it's, it's, I'd like to say it, you might as well say it every single time you mention him. Uh, in, in, in editions of Q, David Lodge will turn up in a sketch and Spike might, miss, might say something silly about, you know, it's Margaret Thatcher or something like that. That's not, it's Margaret Thatcher, like something like that. And you go, no, I'm Dave Lodge, and he'll do the sort of strong, he'll do the flexing his biceps. I was in Cockleshell Heroes. <laughs> and... 
I we just love that. It's 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 fantastic. It's a great catchphrase because he was in Cockleshell Heroes. It is a war. It is a proper cinematic wartime drama, but that that's that should be up there with Fetch Your Cloth. I think we actually watched Cockleshell Heroes principally as a result of all those references <laughs> and cue. So eventually, we've got to see this. But I mean, it's strange that Dave Lodge. He wasn't playing a police sergeant in that. If you want to hear more about Dave Lodge as a police sergeant, then we can recommend the podcast. <laughs> I suspect if you just Google police sergeant David Lodge podcast, I'm pretty sure we'll, 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 we'll be... You know, since we did that, some of the novelty has worn off of some of my thinking that I bring to this. Because you know me, DC Comics boy, so always thinking of the universes and the multiverses. Now multiverses are mainstream. Doctor Strange and his multiverse of madness. It's not it's at the, but I think it should have been his. I'm going to get you away from the DC comics so now because I know you've just got that. Everybody's probably well, no, D- Doctor Strange is Marvel. Webs, but no, I, I know you've just got that subscription to what's that thing called on your tablet? DC Infinite, which gives me access to thousands of DC comics. Now, if you get started on that, then there's there's. There'll be no end to this. So, yeah, we're going to pull this back. No, but right. what I mean is, is a kid, this this used to be a novel piece of thinking that I brought to sitcom, is, is the concept of universes and multiverses. So, like, thinking that just take two sitcoms, t- take some tenuous link you can imagine, as we were doing earlier, as we were pretending that Horrible Lives and Prison Officer Mills and his How name wacker. isn't Wacker, but... Is, is that, did that come from us, the idea that the lead character in the Wackers is called Pa Wacker? Because his surname isn't Wacker. Wacker is a Liverpool phrase that means friend, I believe. There was a group in the 60s called the Wackers, an English group called the Wackers, not the other Wackers, not the Wackers who did, um, oh, I can't remember that song. Oh, plug. Well, you know her face? Something like that. Anyway. Um, plug, uh, plug, the, so plug. There have been two bands called the Wackers. Go on, sorry. Tell you another group that was around in the 60s. Scaffold. Where could you hear them these days if you wanted to hear them right now? Yes. If you want to hear the members of the Scaffold talking about the goons, they're on Goon Pod, presented by our dear friend Tyler Adams. So, lucky, lovely, lovely, lucky couple of lovely fellas. So... I mean, the, the, basically, the jokes start out like the the first scene after the film scene is the man from the lovely couple, lucky, lovely. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. Anyway, so he's talking with his friend uh, who uses a word that hates women that begins with C. <laughs> trigger warning. He refers to this is trigger warning for sexism. Crumpet and making so. They're fairly routine jokes about two blokes together talking about their prospects for copying hang, off. Hang on a minute. Two, two men talking about crumpet just makes you think of the fast show. I like crumpet. Yes. Yeah, let's get some crumpet. I mean, if it had been like that, then perfect. It's not as bad as what um, Pauline Crook's character comes out with. She, she, she makes a derogatory statement about people who visit Marrakesh. But anyway. Yes, it's full of people who begin with Q. A a slur. Actually, this is the weird thing, isn't it, actually, now? Because it's like a slur against the... Oh, hang on a minute. Because the, the, the words that people now like using 
is queer, but she uses it in a derogatory sense. So it's like it's a slur against queer people, and that is also the word. Oh, well, anyway, Lovely Couple was written by Christopher Wood. Gary, would you like to name some other things written by Christopher Wood? Can I name some other things written by Christopher Wood? Are you going to tell me he wrote Batman or something? No, but he did write the novel Confessions of a Window Cleaner. Ho, ho. And Confessions of a Pop Performer. And Confessions of a Driving Instructor. And Confessions from a Holiday Camp. Not Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, sadly, but uh, you can't have everything. He also wrote Rosie Dick's Night Nurse. Did he not also write The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker? He did that as well. But then not quite as relevant to a couple of randy blokes talking about their prospects for copping off with smashing birds. <laughs> Um, I can't help it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just so damn butch. It, it's very, it's very. Um, I suppose you could say formulaic because you've got like, okay, bloke and his best mate. They're talking about, oh, we always go on holiday together, so and so on. And then lady, her best, you know, female friend. They're talking about they always go on holiday together, so and so on. And the point is that the lovely couple aforementioned are actually thinking of going on holiday together. So that that's that's the, that's the basic premise. What I was going to get to... They want to go on holiday together so they can have sex. I think that's... No, no, no hang, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Because th- that's not a word that would ever be used in this, in this show. But the point is that even though we've discussed Pete Murray, Christmas Day, 1969, Top of the Pops, and other examples of excessive liberalization of the sexual mores but th- this this is mores gary webs <laughs> talking about prospects of future podcasts we could maybe do a podcast where only people who've listened to every single edition would understand anything that we're talking about i think we're pretty much there already to be honest because that well i know it's like pete murray and ever decreasing circles all brand commercials David Lodge was in Cockle Shell Heroes. You can overdo it on the end jokes, kid. Yeah, well, okay. But anyway, I did bring up... Did I bring up Cockle... No, I did, I did bring up Cockle Shell Heroes. Yes, I did. Anyway, right. Point is... Cockle hang Shell on a minute. Heroes, who was in that? I only just... I can't well, stop. I can't help myself. No, I only just mentioned Pete Murray in the last podcast. It's not like this is one from the like the the way way back and uh, way back machine. But anyway, right? No, mores. Yeah, you're quite right. That's a more. So anyway, I get the impression that the the premise, the um, the premise of this show, you could have done this ten years earlier. I, I reckon it, it doesn't. It you doesn't called it marriage lines. Well, it it doesn't seem to me to be particularly 1979 ish. It's just that there's not really much to say about Lovely Couple because it is a routine sitcom. But if we put it in the draw marked routine sitcom, never think, never think that this is some sort of elaborate trash receptacle. There's nothing wrong with being a routine sitcom. However, there is in this an example of a really obvious joke setup that doesn't get taken and it's not a matter of a subversion there's a thing about david lodge who is the father of the girl in the lovely couple fancying himself a bit of a handyman he's built himself a pool table that's a bit crooked and a little bit shoddy he's also made a model of the eiffel tower out of matchsticks 1100 all in all and there's a lot of look at this 
He, he doesn't. It's, it's not like a cue. He doesn't present a cue. Look at this Eiffel Tower built with matchsticks. What's going to happen to the Eiffel Tower built with matchsticks? Boom! That's how it would have gone in queue. But anyway, so it's like, all right. So at some point, the guy in the lovely is going to sit on the thing. He's going to knock it over. I. He's going to do some something obscene with it. It's it's that. That Eiffel Tower built with matchsticks is not going to be in the same condition it is now at the end of the episode. It's telegraphed. It's sent by second-class mail. <laughs> we, it's, it's not... Uh, and it gets moved, it gets put on the TV, and then the girl says, you can't put it on the TV, the, the Eiffel thing will melt. To which the guy goes, what, the TV? That's kind of a weak joke, but anyway. Did, I don't remember TVs... The old CRTs getting so hot that they would melt. Um, excuse me, that was glued together. Excuse me, our TV in the family home went. went, 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 went all right, my love. Our TV in the family home went on fire, and so we had to get a replacement from DER. So there it goes. Now it's my parents had a massive brandy glass balloon, sort of brandy balloon, that they kept on top of the TV, and one day it shattered. So the power of television was greater in those days. The backs, the back of a television. Well, yeah, if you open the back of the TV and touch the capacitor, you die. But of course, Jack Harper knew a trick that you could do with the TV where you could like fiddle with it and it would improve the picture quality, but it would then burn out the tube quite rapidly. And then they flogged that TV to Blakey and it blew up. Oh, poor Blakey. I know. Blakey was enlightened. Blakey just wanted people to work hard. I thought that you would appreciate the fact that the Eiffel Tower does not get destroyed the way that you were expecting but here's it to. The th- here's the thing. It, it gets placed on the pool table, which, as we've already established, is kind of rickety. We also have a routine joke. I'm not... Again, this sounds like a put... I'm just sort of... Right. It, it's, it's like... I once saw somebody complaining about a list somebody had put together of routine jokes because they'd taken it that this list was some sort of no-no list or that by producing this list, you somehow said to writers, aha, I know all your tricks. No, it's a little bit like a book, um, Olsen's Standard Book of British Birds. So you open it up and you go, oh, look, that's an example of that. How interesting. This is what I'm interested in, you know? It's like they say, examining comedy is like dissecting a frog. It's really interesting, if that's what you're into. So yeah, so the routine. Th- so David Lodge offers a glass of sherry to I don't know the character names to the guy of the lovely lucky couple. David Mason, confusingly enough, is his character name. Right, D- David Lodge offers and D- Mister Mister Man offers a glass of sherry to David, and David takes a drink. And having taken a drink, his voice becomes hoarse <gasps> because obviously it's real strong stuff or it's real terrible stuff. I think it's actually a sherry that he bought in, isn't it? Though it's not like it's it's not like here's my turnip sherry that I made out of. Marrows, turnips, just the name. I thought you were going to say my turd sherry, which would have been an astonishing um, non sequitur. But uh, (laughs) I made wine in the toilet. What I didn't realize is you're supposed to flush the toilet before you make the wine in it anyway. Drink up, pal. Or I'll get very, you know. I was in cockle. Don't mess with me. Yes, yes, indeed. I was in Mr. Horatio Nipples. So that's routine. And anyway, so there's the whole thing of like... His uh, character so name, by the way, is Hector Dent. That's his name. I wish the show had been about him. Anyway, so there's like, oh, so we're getting engaged. 
And the whole idea is if we're getting engaged, we can go on holiday together and then we can have sex. No, no, they don't say that. They don't say that, but that's the that to me is the subtext. Hang on a minute. Hang on now. Just 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 hold hold everything, right? They're in they're in her parents' home together alone for a period of time. Not not a long time. But the implication is if they wanted to do it, then they had the opportunity right there and then and not to go off to Mallorca or anywhere like that. That is less of yeah, but come on right, right. If they go to Mallorca and they're in a hotel in Mallorca and her parents are not in Mallorca but are some hundreds of miles away back in dear old Blighty, it's a much more secure place to engage in sexual activity than in the parents' house when the parents might come back at any minute. Notice, you're a bit flushed. Oh, you mean that they might just notice they're actually doing it in the living room? There and there. Well, <laughs> there's also that, yes. Forgive me if forgive me if I'm mistaken. I don't. I don't want to uh, rush to judgment, but um, I can't help but notice that you are in coitus at this very moment, and yet the interruptus brought by me is not happening. You seem to be continuing your thrusting, <laughs> and my presence here is not slowing that down, which one would expect under any normal circuit. Oh, you finished? Okay. No. Uh, yeah, okay, I, I'll get you some kitchen roll. That was a public information film. On behalf of the sex council. I can't remember the point. Oh, right, so anyway, so it's like, <laughs> so they say that they're engaged. And it's like, oh, you can have your holiday after you get married. <laughs> and David Mason goes, married or wedding or something like that. And he falls over and he hits the pool table and it then freeze frames and we don't see... We hear a bit of a noise, but it's like, well, hang on a minute. We, I th- we, can, we, we don't even, see, we can't even see the Eiffel Tower on the pool table. We only see a little bit of the pool table. So it's like, surely the big payoff to this episode is he falls on the pool table, the pool table collapses, the Eiffel Tower falls off, and is also damaged in some way. And then we can have like a close up of David Mason going, "Oh, what a life!" Ooh. Uh, maybe not in dialogue, but through his facial expressions. Oh, my boss! <laughs> Gary, I bid you hold a thought for me. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. We have more than one episode of our third forgotten sitcom, don't we? Shall we say goodbye to our public and come back another time and talk about several episodes? Of a sitcom that I remember from the first time around very, very vaguely. And being reintroduced to it has been a balm for my soul, in a way. Uh, which is which is uh, actually appropriate, as it does deal with spiritual matters. Right, here's a thing, right? Do you want to know a thing? So, many years ago, uh, I was volunteering at a community radio station in Glasgow. And I happened to mention to one of the other volunteers there. I said, oh, I think I've got a nice little avenue of, of potential archive material might have opened up. Um, might be able to, to, to find you know a few shows that um, I've been after for a wee while. With no prompting at all, we had never discussed any aspect of this show or the people involved, anything about it at all. He suddenly says, do you reckon Dead Ernest is on there? 
and I'm like I'm still now I'm still trying to sort of recover you know the, the fact that that conversation actually took place and sadly at that time I had to say to him I'm unfortunately not I am not in possession of dead Ernest well would you believe it all these years later and yes we do have it's not the whole run of six episodes but we do have three episodes of dead Ernest that we can talk about and dead Ernest for those who don't know is Andrew Sachs 1982 is made by Central. Well, it's not really because it's sort of made by ATV. It was heavily trailed when Central began at the beginning of 82, as they did with all of their new shows because made a big deal about how new everything was. And it is, well, quite opposite to Lovely Couple, it's a very odd premise for a show. You could possibly put this in the same category as Hardwick House, shows that probably should have been on at 10pm on a Sunday night but weren't. This one at least did actually get all of its episodes at 8pm on a Monday. And it was later remade as The Good Place. There you go. <laughs> so, no, I think that's, that's, that's a cracking idea, actually, because we, we, we actually began this rec- recording by saying, don't know about this, I don't think we've got a lot to say about these, these shows. And, I mean, this cast is obviously going to be edited, like all the other casts. But, yeah, we've actually talked for a considerable amount of time about two sitcoms that, yeah, we didn't expect to. So, yes, I think we'll hold off, dead earnest. So, yeah. Anything you want to plug, Till, in the meantime? I've mentioned Goompod, um, a history of rock music in 500 songs, written and presented by Andrew Hickey, sometimes edited by me. I get a co-production credit, but I don't actually do all that. I do, like, little tiny bits of... I'm just kind of like an extra pair of ears to go through it. Uh, So I am partially involved, and it is good and important work. He's breaking a lot of myths... He's pointing out links that most people don't really think of. And sometimes he he takes a very, very long glide into his topic. I think it was he did one about good vibrations. And it's an hour before he actually mentions the Beach Boys. But it all makes sense. He glides, he glides very elegantly into the matter. So that I couldn't even realize. The, the moment he sort of turned the switch where he's like, Oh, right, he's now going to talk about the Beach Boys. I couldn't see it coming. And yet it came so elegantly. So a lot of them are like that. There's... It's just lots of knowledge. I mean, I'm sure that you, podcast listener, are very eager to just learn things and understand the world better. If you want to do that via rock music, history of rock music in 500 songs. And as for myself, watch ITV. Right, so on that note, do follow us at The Sitcom Club on Twitter. We're on Facebook, same name as always. And, of course, all of our previous podcasts are available at sitcomclub.com and podnose.com as well, where you also find all the Jaffa Cakes for Proust and Jaffaville and everything else of that ilk. There are literally hundreds of hours of podcasts available. So, until next time, Tilt. Goodbye. And we will see you again on the Sitcom Club. <laughs>